at the salvation that we've received, to rejoice at the glory of the Savior being given to men, being given to sinners. And yet, a Savior has been given. And though we are sinners, we have in you, Christ, an eternal hope. We have indeed, as your word tells us, eternal life. We have an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for us who are protected by you through faith, by your power, to receive what is ours by grace. And we ask that you would keep our minds and our hearts and our affections set on this heavenly reward for it is then that we walk wisely, that we walk faithfully, that we know a greater joy that turns away from selfish pursuits to pursue those things that have eternal value. And so we ask as we take this time and prepare for the table and open your word together that you would accomplish these things in our hearts, again for your everlasting glory and for our eternal joy. In your name, Jesus. Amen. We'll open up your Bibles to Revelation, the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, as we come now to our second church in Christ's message as the exalted Lord to his churches, the seven churches that are introduced to us in the book of Revelation and the message, uh, the message given to each one of them in chapters 2 through 3. And so we're looking this morning, beginning our look at his message to the church at Smyrna, the church at Smyrna. Uh, let me begin by reminding us that today is uh, Palm Sunday, which marks the time when Jesus entered into Jerusalem amid the praise of his people and of the crowds. And they, they praised him because they welcomed him as a deliverer of Israel, a king ready to assume his reign and exercise his authority over the nations. Instead, however, after a week of intense conflict with the leaders and much anticipation of the people and a great deal of teaching about the future, the week ends with the seeming victory of the apostate leaders, the winning of those who opposed him, who were supposedly the teachers of Israel. The week ends with the disillusionment of the crowds and the confusion of the disciples and ultimately with the crucifixion of Christ. It was a week that did not end as the people had expected, and as one would have expected watching these events. To the eyes of the world and to many of the disciples, it seemed that all was lost, that the hopes of Israel were gone, that the ministry of Christ proved, in fact, in the end to be a failure, and the power of Rome proved itself to be the strongest, that it proved itself to reign supreme. But, of course, the death of Christ was not the end, it was the purpose of God to provide atonement for the sin of his people. And it was a necessary step to the greater event that we've been singing about this morning, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So in other words, Scripture prepared us, or should have been prepared, his people, and certainly us after the resurrection, to understand that he had to die as Messiah for sin to destroy it. And he had to experience death to bring forth life, the life that we enjoy in him. And in fact, it is the reality of the resurrection that will ultimately bring about a kingdom and a glory far beyond and far greater than ever entered into the imagination of those crowds who welcomed him into Jerusalem on palm branches and amid the shouts of praises. However... The cross had to come before a crown, and the author of our salvation, who laid the foundation for that salvation, 
set for us an example. And in doing so, the example is that there is a pattern to follow, that there is suffering before glory, that there is, as in his life, as it were, a cross before a crown. There is pain before there is joy. And so the call to follow him is a call to follow him in that same pattern. It is in that same path to be willing to lay down our life, to gain his, to take up our cross and follow him that we might have life. Hebrews 12.3 says this after a long explanation of examples and encouragement to the people of God to remain faithful in persecution. He says this in Hebrews 12.3, the writer does, For consider him, being Christ, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And he was speaking to people then who were indeed in danger of losing heart and of compromising on their commitment of faith to Christ, of turning away from the gospel of Christ that they made a profession to back to the old dead ways of Judaism in order to avoid the persecution that was to come. And he's saying, don't do that. Hold on, hold on and be faithful to the end. Now the reality is that we in this room don't understand that kind of suffering, not as of today anyway. But many do during our times and many have throughout the history of the church as we're well aware. In fact, one well stated uh, statement by an early church father said this, that the seed of the martyrs or the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, it was through the faithfulness of those who were willing to lay down their lives for the greater cause of the gospel of Christ that the church was preserved, the gospel was preserved, and the message went forth. And in fact, as we're well aware, many of us, as the persecution against the church has increased throughout her history, in fact, that has not led to her demise, but to her strengthening and to her growth. The greatest threat against the church is not persecution, it's ease and comfort. And Satan knows that very well. But nonetheless, it is through the faithful witness and suffering of the early church that the gospel endured the onslaught of Satan's attacks. And they endured because of Christ. They endured because of his faithfulness and because of the promise of his reward. And in so doing, they embraced his promises and gave us and all who follow in their steps an example of faithfulness. And it is to that faithfulness that Christ calls the church at Smyrna and the church throughout the ages this morning. And it's a faithfulness that comes, as he'll say later in the letter, unto death. And a faithfulness that comes at the cost of life, but a faithfulness that receives an eternal reward. So this is simply a call to faithfulness. So let's read uh, his message to the church at Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And then we'll begin our look at it this morning. Begin in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. 
He who has an ear to hear, has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And so his message is to the church to remain faithful in light of the affliction that is to come. An affliction that would be not merely trouble, but for many it would be death. So let's begin by noting the familiar pattern of Christ's address to these churches. And that is to begin within the context of the church at Smyrna. And this is just to give a general background and a picture of the people to whom he's addressing. Smyrna, as with Ephesus, was another significant city in the empire of Rome. As a matter of fact, it lied, if you were looking at a map, about 35 uh, miles north of the city of Ephesus. It was next on what is likely the postal route, which is following the pattern of the churches being addressed here, most likely. And as with Ephesus, Smyrna was a harbor city and therefore a significant place for commerce. It was a cosmopolitan city. People came from all over. It was modern. It was contemporary. It was wealthy and it was rich in culture and all of the trappings of the Roman Empire. It was even likely, just as a little footnote, point of interest, the birthplace of Homer, that ancient poet. It contained, again, as with Ephesus and any significant city in the Roman Empire, a very large theater with a seating capacity of about 20,000 people. It contained gymnasiums, large agoras, or those are marketplaces uh, where there was selling and buying. Wide roads for pedestrians, such that about 33 feet wide, so it was a significant place of travel and ease of travel for those who visited. At each end of the road of the, of the city, there were temples, one to Zeus and one to a deity named Sybil. There was a large library, a stadium, and it was well known for hosting many of the ancient games of the Roman Empire. And it was a beautiful city described by one ancient writer as the most beautiful city of all of the coastal cities. It was a large city for those times, although it's hard to be exact. There's ranges given from 100,000 to 500,000 people. But nonetheless, it was a significant city. And in addition to all of these attributes... Smyrna had a special relationship to the empire of Rome. In fact, one ancient historian, some of you will know this name, Tactus, in his annals, wrote this, that Smyrna, in a bid to win an argument to actually build a temple for the then emperor of Tiberius, made this argument, that they were the first to build a temple dedicated to the city of Rome. And that argument ended up winning. And they were awarded the right to build as well a temple dedicated specifically to the emperor Tiberius. They indeed found themselves deeply committed to the ideals and the ideology and to the power and to the religious worship of the empire of Rome. They were completely committed to all things Roman. But amid all of these other things, there was also a significant population of the Jews in this city and a significant church, and it is that church that Jesus addresses here in Revelation chapter 2. And it was a faithful church. It was a church who stood firm in the face of opposition. It was a church known by the demonstration of the reality of their trust in Christ and the possession of eternal life. As a matter of fact, in terms of documents of ancient history, it was the recipient of some significant letters. Some of you will know the name of the early church father, Ignatius. 
Ignatius was alive in the second century, and he wrote famously these uh, seven letters to various churches. One of them was Smyrna, and in this letter to the church at Smyrna, he gives this introduction to them. He says, I glorify Jesus Christ, the God who made you so wise, for I observe that you are established in an unshakable faith, having been nailed, as it were, to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ in both body and spirit. They were a church known then for their faithfulness. They were a church known to stand firm in light of the opposition that had come to them. In short then, Smyrna was a large and significant Roman city, steeped in both the pagan idolatries of the empire and the politics of Rome, and a deep, had a deep commitment to, the, to commitment to the cultus of the emperor. It was also home to a significant apostate Jewish population and a faithful suffering church. And again, it is to that church that Christ addresses. And secondly, as he addresses this church, Smyrna, he does so again in the pattern that will be followed by each of his addresses to the churches. He begins with his credentials, with his credentials as the risen Lord, with a statement about his character that is going to be specifically and appropriately suited to the message of the church that he is addressing. And so here he says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last. Who was dead and has come to life says this. Now why is this message suited particularly to them? The first and the last. The one who is dead and has come to life. It is because he needs to remind them that though they suffer, he is the one who stands sovereign over it. Their suffering is not in vain and their suffering is not without purpose. It is a reminder of his sovereignty and his ultimate victory over Satan and the suffering of death that they would have needed to hear as they were a church suffering for his name and walking in his steps were faced with the same consequences. Death, and not only death, but the most horrible of deaths, the most excruciating of deaths of many of those who died there. We'll consider some of that more next week. And this is then the ultimate encouragement. This is the ultimate encouragement in suffering, not merely the suffering that comes to the church because of the faithfulness of their testimony to Christ, but to suffering in general, to what it means to be a Christian in a fallen world and all of the sufferings and tribulations that come in all of its forms and all of its varieties and all of its levels and degrees of intensity. It is the reminder to know that nothing happens apart, not one detail of creation from the specific and sovereign purposes of Christ. That is indeed the very message of the book that we're reading together. What about evil? There is no evil that is outside of the purposes of Christ. And he uses it all in the end for his glory, whether we can see it or understand it now. But he does. And so that is the message that he gives to the church. But amazingly, there are some who are professing Christians who find more comfort in God by limiting his sovereignty to protect what they see as the jewel of libertarian free will. In other words, that man has to make all of their decisions uncoerced and has the ability to make any decision for good or for evil. And so the great goal and the great precious jewel in this theology is the free will of man. This seed is found in Arminianism, but the full flower of it comes in the theology of open theism, which I've mentioned before, and certainly we're not going to go into detail. But let me set that as a backdrop, because it takes over much of what is popular in Christianity. It's in the music, it's in the preaching, it's in the thinking of many of those people who profess Christ. 
Now, at the heart of this theology is the idea that in order to have authenticity in his relationship with his creatures, God limits his own knowledge of the future and indeed his control of future events. And he does so, again, because the great concern of the infinite and holy God is that there be authenticity and that for there to be that, then man's will has to be completely uncoerced. It has to be unordained, as it were. And in creating the world that way, they say, yes, that is a risky world. And in fact, God is a God who takes risk. He risks being disappointed. He risks being frustrated in his purposes. He risks the bad decisions that his people make. But it's worth it because man is so precious to him and his relationship is so precious to him that he's willing to do that. As a matter of fact, one proponent of this theology says this. ...an idea to the relation of risk. He says, if God is in some respects conditioned by his creatures... ...then God takes risk in bringing about that particular type of world. According to the risk model of providence... ...God has established certain boundaries within which creatures operate. But God sovereignly decides not to control each and every event... ...and some things go contrary to what God intends... ...and may not turn out completely as God desires. Hence, God takes risk in creating this sort of world. And there it is. Therefore, God can be disappointed... He can be frustrated in his purposes. He can have to think rather than how he is bringing about his determined will, how he's going to respond to the frustrations that he encounters to do what he ultimately wants to do. But again, it's worth it, they say, because it's worth it to have an authentic relationship with his image bearers. But don't worry, because God loves you and grieves along with you at the disappointments of life and the evils of this world. Summarizing an argument... From an illustration by a story given by open theist Greg Boyd, one captures the very heart of this theology. And he says this, When human tragedy, injustice, suffering, or pain occurs, open theists stand ready with their words of comfort and pastoral counsel. God is as grieved as you are about the difficulties and heartache you experience. And he too wishes that things had worked out differently. However, because God does not and cannot know, much less control, much of what the future holds, we can be assured of his love for us, and we must know that he feels the pain we feel. Suffering often is pointless. Learn to accept this. And be consoled with the realization that God cares deeply about our pain, even as he watches tragic events unfold. So we begin our discussion last week of just seeing how this plays itself out in popular culture by looking at a... Uh, a, a movie in which this explanation was given as to why a bad event happened. We looked at it at a different level of an argument between two theologians in which the Chris, or one atheist, Dawkins, and a Christian theologian, in which the Christian theologian essentially made this very point. Well respected, out at Oxford, this was his argument. God isn't so much responsible in his sovereign purposes for evil, but God will comfort you in it. And that is the great message of God's relationship to evil, according to that theologian. However, if this is actually considered, it's no comfort at all. It's actually terrifying. It's the most frightening reality, if that were in fact the case. The last thing that we need to understand when suffering arises, when, when evil seems to have a power and forces itself upon the people of God, is to think that God is as helpless and confused and frustrated as we are. 
We don't want comfort alone in that. Certainly not comfort from one who's as sorry as we are. We want comfort of one who has overcome that evil, who stands sovereign over it and will give us the grace to be faithful in the midst of it. We want to know that nothing can come our way but that which has passed through the sovereign hand of our God who has redeemed us and accomplishing his purposes. So thankfully, this is not true. It is not true, this theology of open theism. And Christ begins here by assuring them and us that he has ordained the suffering that they will endure, that he rules over it and he uses it to accomplish his purposes for his ultimate glory and the good of his people. And that comes in this statement that he is the first and he is the last. He is the first and the last. That is to say that he is the one at the beginning and he is at the one at the end who is accomplishing his purposes. And we've noted this before, but let me just briefly remind you. This statement and this title of Christ is a direct connection to the revelation of Yahweh of the Old Testament to the nation of Israel. And particularly his revelation to his people when he uh, uses this title in chapter 40 on, a revelation to his people who were at that time in exile, who knew only the ruins of the temple in Jerusalem and who were in a foreign land and surrounded by pagan idolatries. And so he gives them this title to remind them and say, quite different from the way that things appear, I am still your God and I will accomplish my purposes for you. And one of the titles that he uses to emphasize that aspect of his nature is this, that I am the first and the last. And so let me just remind you of some of these. In Isaiah chapter 40, 1, he says this after he speaks about a king that he will rise from a, uh, raise up from a pagan nation, one that he will ultimately go before and empower to subdue nations, and in empowering this pagan king to, sub to subdue nations will also be the one that he uses to deliver his people back to the land when he returns them from the exile that he sent them to, away to. But he says this in giving that promise. He says... In verse 3, he pursues them, speaking of that pagan king, he pursues them, passing on in safety by a way he had not been traversing with his feet. And then he says this in verse 4, he who has performed and accomplished it, that is, who's going to raise up this king and bring about deliverance, calling forth the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. How can you be sure that it'll happen? Because I am the first and I am the last. So it was a word of promise to encourage the weary to trust in his promises. He uses it two other times. Let me just read them to you. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse, beginning in verse 6, he says this. He says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last and there is no God besides me. Who is like me, verse 7, let him proclaim and declare it. Let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. In other words, they cannot, God will. Why? Because God has ordained them. God is controlling them. God is accomplishing his purpose. And so he says, do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me or is there any rock I know of none? Again, in Isaiah chapter 48, beginning in verse 12, in the promise of deliverance, he says this. 
Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and am also the last. Surely my hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. In other words, they stand at the attention of their creator. Assemble all of you and listen, who among them has declared these things. The Lord loves him. He will carry out his good pleasure on Babylon, and his arm will be against the Chaldeans. Verse 15, I, even I, have spoken. Indeed, I have called him, I have brought him, and he will make his way, and he will make his way successful. And then he goes on to declare that he is the one who spoke, his word will not return void, he will accomplish everything that he has said. Therefore, have confidence. His point then is that I will uphold you. Be assured of my promise. And that is the very thing that he's communicating to these people. To the church. To the church at Smyrna. To the churches that would come after. And to the churches that will exist to the end of the age. Who will be persecuted for their faith. Is to remember I am the first and the last. I will uphold you. I will strengthen you. I am not only going to comfort you and strengthen you in the midst of persecution. But I am indeed the one who has brought it about. Trust me. And so with the statement, I am the first and the last, Revelation uses not only that, but another parallel title, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And indeed, interestingly and significantly, those titles come as well at the very end of the book. After he's given the revelation of his purposes for the churches, of his purposes for the end of the world in which he will uphold righteousness and bring justice, after he has brought about the, 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 the establishment of his kingdom on the earth, the final destruction of Satan, the eternal judgment of the wicked, and the gift or the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, he says this in Revelation 21.6. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. And in chapter 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, the very close of the canon, not the last verse almost, but the last chapter, the very ending of all things, he again says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In other words, you can be assured that everything I have revealed to you will come about, that I will accomplish it, not only in my judgment, but for his people, his salvation. And so that's his encouragement. Know who it is who speaks to you from heaven. Know who your God is. Know who Christ is. Do you know who Christ is in any suffering or trial that you are enduring even now? We have to learn to know him now and to trust him now in our difficulties because it's not going to magically appear when more difficult things come. It is a faith that is strengthened now as we learn to trust him in the unexpected, in the challenges, in the losses of life now. So that when it becomes more significant in the future, we have a relationship and a robust confidence in our God who stands over it and with us in the midst of all that he's designed for us to walk through. So it is important that we know this God. It is important that we know him. But thirdly, the commendation of Christ. The commendation of Christ. So what is his message to this church? What is his message to this church? Well, that he stands sovereign over it that he is the one who has died and come to life and can therefore sustain them in the prospect of death. But he's also giving to them the message to say, I know what you're going through in verse 9, his commendation. I know your tribulation. 
and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear for what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let's note first, he commends them for their spiritual richness and affliction, for the reality of their faith. He says, I know your affliction and your poverty, but you are rich. I know it. He knows it, of course, as the one who is walking among the churches, who is walking among the seven golden lampstands, who dwells in the midst of his people by his spirit, who speaks to them from heaven. He knows he is not distant, though he is transcendent. He is imminent with his people. He is near them. He knows their affliction. But I want to begin with a general observation. Because it really runs through the whole of this, uh, this message of Christ to the church. And really all of scripture and all of the book of Revelation. And the general observation is this. That each of the st- statements is in fact a correction of the way things appear. It's a correction to the thinking. In other words, he says, things appear a certain way to your earthly eyes. But by revelation... I reveal to you the way the things actually are. It appears outwardly to the world then, and possibly to themselves and some among the church there in Smyrna and others who face affliction, that they are weak because of their affliction, which includes their deep material poverty. They are, in fact, in one of the wealthiest cities in the whole empire of Rome, the very empire that rules over all of the nations of the earth at that time. They are in one of the most privileged cities of that empire, and yet they are experiencing trouble. They are experiencing deep material poverty, no doubt, as a part of their testimony of faith in Christ. And to the world, they would be viewed as lowly. They would be viewed as cast off by whatever God they say they worship. But in fact, Christ says, that's not your true condition. You are rich. You are spiritually rich. You are richer than those who afflict you. You are richer than those who think you are poor. So it appears outwardly as well to the persecutors and no doubt maybe to some of them that they are being persecuted where he says in verse, uh, in the middle of 9, he says, he says, I know one that it appears to you that you're in tribulation, you're weak in your poverty, but you're rich. Secondly, he says that it appears that those who are persecuting you are doing so for their religious zeal. That they are, in fact, a religious people who has an equal right of commitment to their God as you do. But Jesus says that's not how things really are. They are, in fact, not a religious people serving God, but they are blasphemers being driven by Satan. Again, he's, he's reversing this around and saying it's not as things appear. And this is, again, the glory of revelation of the scripture. He reveals to us the things we cannot know. He corrects our faulty judgments of what we experience with our eyes and he shows us the reality. So they're able to be rejected by the world because having eyes that are open, they see a promise that is greater than their rejection. In the reverse, those who persecute them ridicule and mock their message because they do not see the judgment that is to come. They do not see the hope of the salvation that those they persecute realize. But God wants to strengthen them in this. His message, Christ, is to strengthen them. And so he strengthens them in in this way. Let me give you just a few. And there's one I'm going to zero in on for most of the rest of our time. 
But let me mention a few up front. How is he strengthening them? How does the message of God's sovereignty strengthen them in their suffering? One, it is this. Because God sovereignly limits the scope of their suffering. Uh, look at what he says he, in verse 10. He says, Do not fear uh, what you are about to suffer. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. He says, The devil is about to cast some of you into prison. And just notice this very briefly. Some of you into prison. Not all of you. Not all of you are going to experience the same persecution. Not all of you are going to have to suffer to the same degree. Not all of you are going to be thrown into prison. But some of you are. But it is a reminder that God is in control of those who are escape that persecution and those who are endure it. He measures the scope. He limits it. He'll limit it later, we'll talk about next week. For 10 days, he, he's in control of the time of the suffering. He's in control of the scope of the suffering. He's in control of the degree of the suffering. And so they're to find comfort. But notice this, and this is really where I want to focus. He's in control of the source of their suffering. He's in control of the source of their suffering. And here it's important to notice that there are different layers of causation as it were, for their suffering. There is, in one sense, the immediate cause of the Jews and the pagan Gentile government, but there is another sense of the hidden satanic influence that stands behind it. There are two sources, and it's important that we're aware of both. Let's note just first, briefly, consider the immediate human source, the Gentiles and the apostate Jews. And they're apostate because... He identifies them as such. He says they call themselves Jews, uh, but they are not. They are not. They are Jews certainly by physical, physical lineage, no doubt. They are Jews because they are descendants of Abraham. They are Jews because they had the markers of the old Judaism and Jewish religion of circumcision in the temple and so forth. In that sense, they are broadly identified as Jews, but Jesus says they're not Jews. They're not. They're only Jews in name only. In fact, they are no longer and really never were my people. They have rejected my truth. They have rejected my word. And they took great esteem in being called Jews. They saw this as a great privilege. They saw this as a great honor of being, in their mind, the historic and ancient people of God, the favored people of God. Paul addresses this, and I just want to mention this briefly, in Romans chapter 2. And this is the same idea that Jesus is picking up on in his message to Smyrna. Speaking of the Jew, he said in verse 17 of Romans 2, If you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God that you know his will, that you approve the things that are essential, that you're instructed out of the law, that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. That's how they viewed themselves. The very favored, the very knowledgeable, the insightful, the, the special people of God. They were the instruments of God's purposes in this world. But he says, in fact, you reject everything that you say that you hold dear. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? He says the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He ends it there and says in verse 28, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. 
But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise comes to him from God. And so here's a rich paradox, isn't it? There are the Jews who see themselves as the people of God, the favored people of the covenant, the ones who are doing the will of God. And in fact, Jesus says to them, you're not a Jew. You're not the people of God. You're not the ones who, I know, who know me and whom I know. You are, in fact, apostate. And the ones you are persecuting, they are, in fact, the true Jews in the sense that they are the true people of God. They are the true possessors of the covenant. They are the true possessors of my salvation, of my favor, and of my grace. And so they are persecuting him, this church. They are trusting in their Jewishness, but they are false. And they are, in fact, blaspheming God. And he says, blaspheming there. And the blasphemy that they are giving against the church. Now, the blasphemy there is this. It's from a divine perspective. Now, in fact, these Jews were not openly defying and rejecting and speaking against God. But by the fact that they were persecuting God's people and they were speaking against Christ and they were speaking against the risen Lord who is the one true and living God, they were, in fact, from God's perspective, blaspheming. This is, again, where Revelation tells us that things are not always as they seem. They think that they're serving God, but they're rejecting him. They think they're honoring him, but they're blaspheming him by rejecting the name of Christ. And Jesus, in fact, warned about this. He said in John 16, 2, this and other things, that the time will come when you're going to suffer, he says, and those who are your persecutors in John 16, 2, will think that they are offering service to God. That happens in a lot of forms, of course. If you go to... A Hindu nation and you're persecuted for the testimony of Christ. They think they're offering service to their gods. If you go to Islam and proclaim Christ and you're beheaded. It is because they think they're offering service to their god. If you were a Christian in Smyrna and hated and persecuted by the Jews. They thought they were offering service to God. There's a lot of people who think they're offering service to God. And in fact they're not. And no doubt, these Jews were provoked in their hatred of the Christians, not only because of their message, but because of their success in the area. As the message went forth and the church grew, you know what that meant. It meant that they were turning away some from Judaism to obey Christ, and that many from even the Gentiles were turning to Christ, and this was to them a threat. It was a threat. And so there was the combined hatred here of these apostate Jews and of the Gentiles who were utterly committed to the system of Rome. Let me just give a brief illustration of this, of what they were actually experiencing. And we can, of course, make these connections to our times. But the early church, uh, the, the illustration comes again from the early church father, uh, Polycarp. Some of you will know that name. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. And he actually became the bishop of the church at Smyrna in 115 AD, and he was also martyred there. Later, And there's a letter, which I'll reference uh, later, and it's got a letter from the Smyrnans. And so it's a letter that's probably dated back to about the 2nd century 
A.D. And it was a letter written from the Smyrnans to another church. And in this letter from the Smyrnans, they were talking about the martyrdom of Polycarp. And it was to exalt uh, his faithfulness to the Christian witness all the way unto death and the way that God preserved him. And they mentioned some other martyrs in this letter as well. But it's essentially about the way that Polycarp stands above them all as a testimony and example to follow. And in this letter of the Smyrnans, uh, written to uh, another church, uh, they recount in this, in this uh, details of Polycarp's uh, martyrdom that he had been brought in before the, the governor and the crowds and the, the rulers of the city. They had brought him into the stadium and he was on trial. The governor was addressing him because of his testimony. He would not recant. And at this point, it's recorded that Polycarp was 86 years old. And they keep making these appeals to him in this letter, or in this account in the letter. They keep making these appeals saying, have mercy because of your old age. Go ahead, you can miss all of the suffering that is coming if you will just recant on Christ, your testimony to Christ. And of course, he would not do that. And so as he would not do that and he would not respond to their appeals, the fervor and the excitement and the agitation of the governors and the crowds only increased. And it says in one part of this account that when this was declared by the herald, all the multitudes, Gentiles and Jews dwelling at Smyrna cried out, this is the teacher of Asia and the father of the Christians, the destroyer of our gods, he that teaches multitudes not to sacrifice and not to worship. Another account of that letter by an ancient historian, Eusebius, says this, that they cried out with uncontrollable fury and in a loud voice, uncontrollable fury. They had an absolute hatred towards the steadfastness and the testimony of this one who would not bend to their threats. And so filled with rage, after being denied originally they were going to take him to the beast but uh, they weren't able to do that and so they declared that he would be burned with fire and so as he awaited this destruction they went out and it says they gathered material for the fire and then you see one of the historians notes this that it was especially the Jews who were eager to encourage this work and to gather the fuel for the fire that would burn him it was such a mounted attack against this leader which was a mounted attack against the testimony of Christ. So the Christians were equally hated by the Romans who saw them as a threat to their gods and their way of life for not participating in the worship of the emperor. And they were hated by the Jews for declaring that Jesus was the Christ and God and the Messiah. It was the whole culture that had turned against them. And Christ says, stand steadfast even as they shout out with uncontrollable rage and even as they gather the fire for the fuel... I am in control. I am the first and the last. Now just as a brief note here, why were the Christians persecuted and not the Jews? And this is just a, this is for clarity of context. The Jews also were not required to sacrifice to the Roman God. And so they weren't required to sacrifice because the Jews had, as a nation, been granted special privileges. Well, then why were the Christians well, at first, the Christians enjoyed a kind of protection because they were seen merely as a sect of Judaism, and so they were freed from some of those requirements. But that changed around a little bit after the mid of the first century, particularly with the Neronian persecution. 
And the Christians begin to be identified as a specific group. And eventually they came out from under, as they were identified as such, they came out from under the protection of Judaism and they were seen as a religion in their own right. And therefore they no longer were afforded the protections that were given to the Jews. And so here they are. They were then now subject to, required to give ultimate homage and allegiance to the cultus of the emperor, to ultimate allegiance to the state. And so that was played upon by not only the Gentiles in terms of their hatred of them, seeing them as ones who would bring harm and destruction again upon their way of life, but that was also something that was stirred up by the Jews to say, look at these Christians, look at how they're destroying your culture, look at how they're the ones who are destroying your gods, look at how they are the ones who are going to bring havoc and chaos to the nation, they need to be destroyed. Look at how they refuse to give homage to Caesar, they are rebels and they are threats. Now, it's not too hard to see how that jumps over into our times that are coming, does it? Look at those who won't bow the knee to the ideology of the LGBTQ movement. They had over in Finland bishops of the church there who were put on trial and who were freed from the charges brought against them, but just barely, and the arguments were thin enough to know that they cannot hold for long. Because they would not say and they would not bow to that ideology. Look at the churches around the world who are in various ways and forms having to stand firm because they will not bow to the requirements that were put upon them. This is no different. There are Christians who are in the lands of Islam who are subject to the radical and to the violent hatred of those who say they are blasphemers of God. This isn't, this isn't just ancient history. They are but one example of the hatred that is meant against Christ from all of those who reject him. However, there's more going on here than unbelief. And this is what I want to emphasize for the next few minutes. There's more going on here than human unbelief. And this is what Christ wants us to understand. Look at what he says. So there's the blasphemy of the Jews. There's the, the hatred of the culture. There are the lies and the threats being brought against these Christians. But he says, not only are they unbelieving Jews, not only are they apostate, look what he says at the end of verse 9. They are a synagogue of Satan. They are a synagogue of Satan. There's, consider the weight of the statement. The synagogue would have been to all human appearances the way that it would have seen to human eyes that it represented the gathering of God's people to hear from him, to, to read his words from the Old Testament scripture and the Torah, presumably to offer worship to him. They are gathering together in these synagogues thinking that they are pleasing to God all the while they are worshiping and serving and doing the will of Satan. That's the testimony of the risen Christ. And they took this to heart, in fact. Another early church writer, Ignatius, wrote a letter to the church at Smyrna fairly early on in the second century AD. And he said this, speaking of some of the hostility there. He said, Ignatius did certain people ignorantly deny him or rather have been denied by him, for they are advocates of death rather than of the truth. Neither the prophecies nor the law of Moses have persuaded them, nor thus far the gospel nor our own individual suffering, for they think the same things about us. 
For what good does it do me if someone praises me but blasphemes my Lord by not confessing that he is in the flesh? Anyone who does not acknowledge this thereby denies him completely and is clothed in a corpse. And this is attributed to the deception of the evil one who has blinded their minds because when they gather to worship, they're not gathered to hear from God, though they think so, but rather to come under the influence of Satan. Well, let's consider this secondly, not only the human source then, and the hidden satanic influence. He takes it even further. He says they are a synagogue. They're supposedly gathering to worship God, but they're not. And then he says, in the persecution that's going to come, while the Jews might be the one who physically grab you, it's really the devil. Look at verse 10. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you in prison. In other words, he's ultimately the one who stirs it up, who is the source of that violence. The devil, of course, doesn't come down in some appearance and form and grab each of them physically. It's the Jews who are doing that. It's the Gentiles and the Roman officials who are doing that. But he's saying it's not them who are doing it by themselves. There is a force that is a reality behind them, and it is the devil who is doing that. They're going to throw you into prison. And yet, Scripture constantly makes this clear to us, constantly presents Satan as the spiritual source of hatred against God's people. We have to remember that we are in a spiritual battle. It's not just here. You know, I'll just remind you of this. When Peter's writing to the persecuted church scattered about in the Roman Empire, he says this in verse 8. You're, you know this first. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's the devil who seeks to do that. Later in Revelation, during the time of his judgment specifically to come at the last days of this age... He says, it is the devil in fury who is going to turn against, interestingly, in this case, he's speaking of the Jews, particularly. Those who were born of the woman in the vision that he has. And he says this in verse 12. He says, for this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you, will dwell in, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And then when he talks about the persecution that is going to go against the Jewish nation at that time, he says in verse 17 of Roman 12, So the dragon was enraged with the woman, because in his persecution she escaped, and he went off to make war with the rest of her children, who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Jesus. Now I'm getting ahead of myself here, we are, but that's anticipating the time when a great wrath and a persecution in which Jesus described as the abomination of desolation set up in the temple. At that time, there's going to be a persecution against the Jewish people and many of them will die, many of them will suffer, but many of them will be saved and come to faith in Christ and that will enrage him only all the more. But here it is, he says to this church, he says, you will be cast into prison, but understand, there is a sinister force behind this reality. And again, this was embraced by the church. They understood this as they suffered for the testimony of Christ. Again, in the letter of the Smyrnians, uh, in reference to tortures that were inflicted upon the different Christians, they, they made this statement, For the devil did indeed invent many things against them, but thanks be to God, he could not prevail over all. That was the testimony of this same church when they saw the Christians put to death, 
The devil was seeking to do this, but he did not prevail because their testimony was faithful to the end. Now again, this is behind, really, in this secret supernatural sense, behind the persecution and the hatred of men against the testimony of Christ. And this has been made evident and plain throughout Scripture. Let me just give you a few examples of this. Again, passages that you're very familiar of with. In John chapter 8, and I'm just going to reference them. In John chapter 8, he says this. Jesus, in this very intense conflict with the Jewish leaders, one of the most intense conflicts and conversations that he has throughout his entire ministry. And he says to them in verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he who sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. Why can't they hear his word? Verse 44, because you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. So Jesus is standing among these religious leaders. He's saying, you want to kill me, and I'm going to explain to you why you want to kill me. Because you are operating out of the desires of your father, which is not the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of David the God of the prophets, the God of the covenant, the God of Sinai, the God of Moses. That's not the God that you're worshiping, because if you did, you would love me, because I'm the same. In fact, you are acting out of your true God, Satan. That's the words of Jesus to them. And so he reminds us here, that is the case. It was throughout the ministry of Jesus who ultimately killed Jesus humanly, betrayed him, or betrayed him. It was Judas... But it was ordained by God. Jesus said in his prayer to the Father in John 17, 12, that Judas was the son of perdition so that the scripture might be fulfilled. It had to happen that way. In Acts 1, 16, they affirm the disciples do that Jesus died or that Judas died after his betrayal of Christ when he hung himself because that was to fulfill scripture. Jesus himself in the midst of his ministry with the disciples, acknowledged that one from among them was, in fact, not merely a traitor, but a devil. In John chapter 6, after many of the disciples left because of hard teaching, he said this in John 6, 70, Jesus answered and said to them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? In other words, you're here by my sovereign decision. You're here by the will of the Father. You're here by my obedience to that will of the Father. You're here and drawn into my inner circle by the plan of God. And then he says, yet one of you is a devil. Verse 71, now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus knew exactly what was going on. In the Last Supper, when he washed the seed, it says in verse 2 of chapter 13 that, David, that Satan had put into the, the heart of Judas to betray him. In the midst of the supper, when Judas went out, it says in verse 17 or verse 27 that, Judas, that Satan entered into Judas. And Jesus said, now go do what you do quickly. Speaking to Judas, I think it's very likely he was actually speaking through Judas to Satan. Saying, go do it 
Go do it. What does all this mean? Let's just consider this. So in one sense, we cannot say then, and this is worthy to consider, and I'm going to introduce it here. We'll have to pick it up more next week. But in one sense then, we cannot say the devil made me do it. But in another sense, we can say that he has sway over the influence in the heart of sinners. He can oppose a believer to be sure, but he exercises authority over the unregenerate. This is crucial to understand. It is the devil who is behind this. It is the devil who is behind the persecution that you are experiencing. Well, I'm not going to be able to say everything on this. We can pick it up, but let me put this. We need to understand that God himself identifies that this world overall of unregenerate people is in fact under the authority of Satan. Paul says in Colossians 1.13 that it is the domain of darkness that Christians are rescued from. The term there is actual exousia. It's often translated authority. You're under this realm, as it were, this authority, as it were, this control, as it were, that you were under that outside of Christ of darkness and of evil. He says later to the Corinthians, words you're familiar, he says, Why is the gospel hidden to some? Why does a veil lie over their eyes? Why do the Jews read the old covenant and see no glory in it? Why do some hear the message of Christ and they see no glory of God in it? Why do they hear the message of sin but they are not convicted by it? Why do they hear of a risen Christ but they are uninterested in it? Why do they not see the very thing that I'm willing to die for? And he says this, it's because the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. The God of this world has done that. And until God removes that blinder, they cannot see and they will act as unregenerate and servants of Satan do and they will persecute. Jesus himself said as he anticipated his crucifixion that the ruler of this world is coming. And when he stood there in the midst of that garden and when they had come to betray him... By the leading of Judas, he looked at them, they who thought they were in power, and he said this in Luke 22. This hour and the power of darkness are yours. They're yours. They're not yours because of some supreme power that you have. They are yours because the sovereign God of the universe has granted it to you for time. For his purpose. For his glory. And so do what you've come to do. And this is the message. And again, we'll pick it up next week. This is the message that he says. This is a time that God has allowed Satan for his own purposes. Indeed, God has directed him for a period of 10 days to throw some of you in prison. But I am with you and be faithful to the end. And you will receive the crown of life. Satan may be behind and stirring up the hatred of the Jews against Jews. Satan may be behind the vicious and uncontrollable anger of the shouts of the crowd when you stand in the midst of the stadium. Satan may be behind the apostate Jews who are stirring up hatred against you out of their evil and out of their jealousy and rejection of God. But know that Satan is behind it and Satan does not do anything that I don't command him to do to fulfill my purposes. He does it He's the cause. He's the evil. He does it out of his own nature. 
but he doesn't do it apart from my purposes. And he doesn't do it apart from my control. So stand firm. Stand firm. And this is the promise. The church at Smyrna would have celebrated the Lord's Supper even as we do this morning. And no doubt when many of them were being persecuted, they would have remembered the times of gathering together and hearing the same words that we repeat and the church repeats throughout the ages. That they're suffering for a kingdom that is to come. A kingdom that is not of this world. They serve a king who stands supreme over emperor, over Tiberius, over Nero and all the others. And our king has demanded that, determined that we should suffer now, but that's okay because we will be rewarded for our faithfulness to him in battle. He will sustain us and he will bring a kingdom that is very much worth suffering for. He will bring to us a salvation that was very much worth waiting for, regardless of what it seems like to you. And so we, in the same vein with the church throughout the ages, come to the table and we rejoice in the promises that God has made, that our salvation is secure, that we are citizens of a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. If every mounted power and rebel force in all of the universe mounted up against Christ, which it does, it is nothing to him. He blows on it like the wind, and it's destroyed. And we have to believe that. We have to believe that, because that's our strength in suffering. And so as we come to the table now, let us ask God to encourage our hearts with the glory of the kingdom that we have been belonged to and commit ourselves afresh to walk with him. Let me pray, and as the men come forward, we'll pass out the elements and then take the table together. Our Father, these things are beyond us. And in one sense, we can attest to your glory. We, we can see it with the eyes of faith that you give on the pages of Scripture. We can see it through the testimony of those who have gone before us. And we realize that we need to live by the truths of your word every day. But we realize we are inadequate to do that. It is only by your spirit who has come to indwell us. It is only by the spirit given to us as the gift and the promise of the new covenant. Poured out upon your church the day of Pentecost because of the exalted Christ who is now at your right hand, Father. And we are united to you, O Christ, by that Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we ask you, as the one whose ministry it is to exalt Christ, that you would exalt him in our hearts. Not only today as we gather, but each day as we come before your word. Sustain us, uphold us, convict us, teach us, train us, rebuke us, correct us. Fulfill your ministry to preserve us until the day of Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.